Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Yesterday, December the 13th, at around 8.30 p.m. Baghdad time, United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein alive. He was found near a farmhouse outside the city of Tikrit in a swift raid conducted without casualties. And now the former dictator of Iraq will face the justice he denied to millions. And that's where our story begins for today's show. CIA senior analyst John Nixon was in charge of interrogating the former president and dictator of Iraq, and he chronicles his experiences in the new book, Debriefing the President, the Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. John Nixon joins us on today's program. Mr. Nixon, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. So what memories come back to you when you heard that, uh, that announcement uh, from uh, 2003 of President Bush? Oh, well, actually, uh, when I heard the announcement, it was much later. Uh, it was almost 24 hours after we had, since I had first seen Saddam. And uh, I was kind of wondering what was taking so long, but um, you know, it was a, it was a very tiring. I remember it was a very tiring day, and yet I thought my work had been done, and now it was really just beginning. Well, when you say that uh, your work had been done, uh, you were called in to identify Saddam Hussein when he was captured. Talk about that. Why did they call you in to do the identification? And talk about that first meeting with Saddam. Sure. Um, I was brought in because uh, I was perhaps one of the more knowledgeable people in, in the intelligence community. Uh, on Saddam, I'd studied him for a number of years, and just on a day-in, day-out basis, just keeping track of all of his activities and everything he said and did, and uh, had become kind of an expert on who he was. And I, I was in Baghdad at the time expressly for the purpose of working with the U.S. military to help find where he was hiding. And uh, once we did that, um, there was a, a, some, a fear that was pervasive that there were, that there were body doubles um, and that before we announced to the world that we had caught Saddam, we needed to make sure that it was actually Saddam himself and not one of these people who looked like Saddam. Uh, now, uh, one of the great and most persistent myths about Saddam Hussein is the fact that there were no body doubles. You know, it just, it, they, they didn't exist. They, they were a figment of our imagination. One and, of many, I might add, that oh, we'll touch absolutely, on today. Yeah. Absolutely. And so what we did, so, uh, you know, I, I was sent out just to, to make sure it was him. And I was looking for a number of things. I was looking for uh, some, some physical characteristics like uh, tribal tattoos that he had and uh, a possible bullet wound, maybe some problems with his back. Um, I was also kind of looking for, at, his, at his jaw because he used to have this sort of droopy lip from, from a lifetime of smoking cigars. Uh, but to be honest with you, um, the, minute, the minute the door opened and I saw him sitting there two feet away from me, there was not a, a shred of doubt in my mind that it was him. 
So, you know, the the question that you've been asked over the years and that very day uh, that you were asked over and over and over. So what was it like the first time you got to meet Saddam Hussein? Um, The first time was it was a little bit contentious. You know, he uh, he he, we kind of I had a series of questions that I I needed to ask just to sort of verify for not so much for myself but for the people that I was with um, and also some questions that we needed to ask that headquarters and the White House wanted wanted asked immediately um, and he was very uh, very he was, he was very standoffish at first um, you know it, it's really kind of interesting because he when he got picked up and brought in and by the time we got to see him it was almost like he was holding court. He, we walked into this room, and he had all of these military, U.S. military personnel standing around him, and he almost acted like he was the host and they were the guests <laughs> rather than the other way around. And uh, it was pretty, pretty interesting to see how quickly he adapted himself to his new surroundings. Um, you know, he... Uh, when we started talking to him and asking him questions, he immediately was trying to take control and wrest control of the interrogation from us, and we pushed back on that. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he could be, at times, he would answer the questions, and then other times he, he, simply, he simply wouldn't. You describe in the book that uh, that very first session that you had with him. Now, I think that our listeners have to realize that obviously, you know, that the questions are being asked uh, through a translator and that there was a little bit of uh, an argument. I don't know if it goes far as saying an argument, but um, disagreement going on amongst uh, the Americans in the room and that Sodom seemed to take some delight in that. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad you uh, you pointed that out because yes, that was that was one of the more interesting aspects of uh, of that first night. Um, yeah, he there was there was some tension because of the the quality of the, tra- the basically we had our tra- the CIA had our own translator and the U.S. Army had their translator and the U.S. Army's translator kept on criticizing our translator and he would correct him and he in a very kind of rude way and Saddam picked up on this because Saddam understood English very well and so after a while he started sort of you know he would look at the army's translator and make this look like oh please you know help me help me with these fools you know and the and the army translator would reciprocate and he would just sort of shake his head and look down at the ground in disgust and it created a very tense atmosphere. And really what, what it was was Saddam saw his opportunity to sort of take a group of people and sort of divide them against each other. And it was sort of like the way he ran his country for three decades. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he, his, his, his standard operating procedure was to sort of get people to work against each other and with him being the, 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 the wire puller. And uh, and it was a very effective tool, and it was a very effective tool that night. And uh, subsequently, when I started to debrief him, he would he would try to do that occasionally, but with less result, with less positive results.
You know, I think most of us are, are familiar with the run-up to the war in Iraq, but, you know, I, I reminded myself that it's been 13 years, going on 14 years now. So uh, before we get into uh, your interrogation of Saddam Hussein, let's talk about uh, the Iraq War and the intelligence that brought us to invade Iraq. In the book, uh, you are, were critical of that intelligence, even though you were working in the CIA. Talk about your impressions of what went wrong leading up to the war. Oh, gosh. I know. Uh, That's a whole show right there. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, you know, uh, we, when the Bush administration came into office, there was, a, there was a clear sense that Iraq was considered unfinished business. And that something needed to be done about Saddam Hussein because he had been sort of thumbing his nose at the international community for a long time, um, and it wasn't, you know, there there was there wasn't it, they were still sort of deciding how they wanted to proceed right up until the point of 9/11, and then when 9/11 happened, that's when everything changed, and that's when the administration sort of began to move into a certain gear. Uh, high gear uh, towards the, in the march towards war. And at that t- point in time, um, the, the, what shall I say, the, the, the intelligence community was starting to feel a lot of pressure from the administration to collect information on Saddam and to start, you know, providing what they were looking for in terms of justifications for the war. And that was particularly true in the case of um, weapons of mass destruction, but also in the case of his ties to international terrorism. And uh, there were, and you know, there, there was sort of a, a perfect storm that occurred. Um, one was this pressure to sort of provide the administration with justification. Another was that subsequently, after 9-11, the, the CIA began to go through all of its records, and oftentimes in the world of intelligence, not everything that's collected is disseminated. You know, sometimes there are problems with reports or things that are deemed that not really, don't really make the threshold. They don't make the cut. And subsequently, after 9-11, everything on Iraq got disseminated. So now there was all of this really, really lousy reporting and reporting that normal in no, more normal times would not have been disseminated. Subsequently, you know, um, it was kind of a, a CYA move because the agency didn't want to be blamed for something to be, you know, for example, if they, they didn't want to be blamed if, like, all of a sudden they had this report that said that 9-11 was going to happen and they had been sitting on it and because they didn't believe it to be true. So they didn't want to put themselves in that position. So that was another another thing that happened. Then the third thing was because of the um, interest and the, the policymaker and administration interest in moving towards hostilities with Iraq, the number of analysts started to grow exponentially. And the, and the need for more and more analysts and more and more collectors uh, really began to sort of go through the roof. And so you had a lot. So you have an administration that is hell bent on getting rid of Saddam Hussein. You have now reams and reams of information that is coming out that's really kind of unreliable, and and most seasoned analysts don't believe it. But now, and you also now have more and more analysts who are unseasoned who who do believe it, 
and who, who don't have the experience to be able to sort of vet this information. And, and then after that, you have uh, the administration itself sort of delving into the raw intelligence themselves because they don't believe what the CIA is telling them. And they start creating new entities, particularly in the Pentagon, that will provide the justifications and the, 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 the sort of intelligence uh, green light that they want to have so that they can go to war. What and it you, really is a perfect storm. What you describe in the book is, and in fact, I think you even use this terminology, is that uh, the CIA, or at least the, the, uh, those in like George Tenet, and, uh, and I'm, I don't think you could call George Tenet out uh, specifically, but that there were a lot of yes-men that told the administration what they wanted to hear, and the administration didn't want to hear anything that didn't fit their narrative, correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, there is, there's a certain, and this is not going to make me very popular <laughs> with CIA personnel, but, you know, I, I didn't write the book for them. Um, there's a certain element of careerism, uh, if I, for lack of a better phrase, at the CIA. And there are a lot of people there who talk a good game about, you know, mission and country and what have you, but really what they're all about is their careers. Mm-hmm. And so they, what they do is then they, um, they sort of, you know, they, 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 they're uncanny. In t- well, let, let me put it this way, if I can. The CIA, there are two types of people at the CIA. Pool pl- I, used to, I used to call them, there are pool players and there are marathon runners. Marathon runners are people like me. They, they, I, I was an analyst there. Um, they're people who get enjoyment out of doing the work, out of doing a good job. And, and you know, it's not glamorous. It's hard work. You know, there's not much of a, a, a payoff at the end, but, you know, something there's a, a great div- deal of satisfaction with having achieved achieve certain things. Then there are the pool players. The pool players see the agency life as a game and that everything that happens at the agency life is a game that has to be played and, and they are always calculating angles and it's always about them getting on top and them winning and, and how they win is by playing the angles. And unfortunately, those are the people, <laughs> the, the marathon runners are not really valued as much as the pool players because the pool players are very good bureaucrats. And, and the CIA is a bureaucracy, and, and it needs bureaucrats. Mm. And it's, it's, it's very uh, disappointing um, and because these people have a tendency to kind of want to just sort of suck up to the next person who can help them climb the rung. And that kind of goes all the way up to the top. And, uh, you know, George Tenet did many good things for the agency. But um, when it came to Iraq and when it came to the Bush administration, I think George Tenet would have been better served had he just left the agency in 2001 when George Bush came in. Because, you know something, the, the neocons in the Bush administration had him pegged as the fall guy from day one. And, uh, you know... George Tenet kind of ran the CIA the way George Tenet's father ran his Greek diner in Queens, New York, and that was to sort of make sure the customers are happy, make sure the customers are getting what they want, because that means they'll come back for more. And you know something, that's the way he kind of approached George Bush. He wanted to always make him happy because he wanted to be a player downtown, and uh, unfortunately he got a little too close 
to to those who really didn't have the agency's best interests at heart and who wanted to make sure that if anything went wrong, the agency was going to get blamed. And what also is disappointing, and disappointing is probably an understatement, uh, maybe strong enough, not strong enough words, uh, is that these pool players and uh, those people who are making decisions uh, that other people's lives are at stake. We're going to talk more about uh, CIA. We're going to talk about uh, the Saddam Hussein and what he had to say to Mr. Nixon in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're talking with John Nixon, who uh, has written a new book entitled Debriefing the President, the Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. Mr. Nixon was uh, the the first CIA analyst to conduct extensive interrogations of uh, Saddam Hussein when uh, Hussein was uh, captured in 2003. If you have a question or comment, 2000, excuse me, if you have a question or comment, call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can do the same on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at Smart Talk WITF. Again, 1 800 729 7532. All right, let's get into a little bit of uh, your conversations with Saddam Hussein. Uh, but before we do, you, you write that it occurred that our government had never prepared for capturing Saddam alive. What made you believe that? Well, um, when we were looking for him, we were inundated with lots of lots of intelligence reports saying that <clears throat> Saddam was going to uh, that Saddam had suicide belts, that he was going to blow himself up, and that he had so much so much so many explosives attached to him he could take out an entire city block. Um, and uh, there was this widespread belief, particularly in the U.S. military, which kind of understandable because they were just trying to protect their own men and women, but um, widespread belief that these reports were true. And for years, people had been saying, whenever we were asked a question, there were always a a number of people who would say, well, Saddam's going to go down, you know, if, if push comes to shove and his regime is over, he'll go down with a ship. He'll go down fighting in a blaze of glory. Whereas our sort of our, 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 psychiatrists at the agency said, no, that's not true. You know, this man is a survivor. He's not going to, he's not looking to die and he's not a martyr and he's not going to commit suicide. Um, and they ultimately were, were right about that. But anyway, um, so there was this belief that no matter how often we argued it, it just it seemed to sink in more and more that Saddam was going to die in, in any capture at- attempt. Um, Subsequently, he was caught, and it took Washington almost a full week to figure out what it is they wanted to do. Uh, I, I remember the night of the capture, talking to some some people from the U.S. Army, uh, and they were they were just dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that he had survived. And I said, you know, we we've been telling you guys, this is he's not going to kill himself, and he, you know, he's just not he's not conditioned that way. And he's not, that's not part of his make, his psychological makeup. One of the things that uh, we heard when he was on the run and even after he was captured was that he was insane, that Saddam Hussein, uh, that he was mentally ill, that uh, he, he did not have, have his faculties. What did you find when it came to his mental state? Oh, he was, he was saner than a lot of people I knew at the agency. Um, he was, he was quite sane. Um, and he was quite coherent, and 
Certainly he had his own defense mechanisms. For example, during our debriefing, he would often refer to himself as still being the president of Iraq, even though those days were long gone. Um, but the thing is, he he was quite sane. Uh, you know, and there was never any doubt in my mind that he was not you know, in, in full command of his intellect and his uh, emotions and his mental faculties. But you also say that he wasn't very cosmopolitan, that he didn't have a grasp of what was going on around the world. Uh, how would you describe that? I mean, you know, describe his personality. Sure. You know, Saddam was, uh, he was not a very well-educated man. And everything he kind of knew, I think, in life was, was from his own life experiences. And in that sense, he was a very shrewd and and capable leader of Iraq when it came to sort of maintaining himself in power, acquiring power and maintaining himself in power. Um, however, he and, he and he also had an uncanny understanding of his people and their wants and their fears and their rivalries, which he always took advantage of. Um, but when it came to international affairs, when it came to the international system, certainly when it came to countries like the United States, he didn't really understand who who or what they were, uh, largely because he was not really a very well-traveled person, and he was not a not a highly educated person. He he had a he loved history and he loved to read about history. I'm not sure he always understood its lessons. But uh, he, you know, he really had a, a great respect for historians. And he was sort of like, uh, I make this point in the book, he was sort of like the sort of retired auto worker who loves to watch the History Channel. You know, uh, he might not understand everything, but still he, he, he's absorbed by it. <laughs> but you said that uh, he also had charisma, uh, yeah. but you also did not like him. Yes. It was, it was um, he, you know, it, it was the darndest thing. He, when he walked into a room, even in his diminished status as a prisoner, when he walked into the room, you just, you felt the change in the room. It, it just, he, some people just have this, this magnetic personality that it, it just changes things. And he, he had that in, in spades, I thought. He was, uh, and he was, had very good political skills, and he was very good at winning people over. I remember the first few sessions with him, I, I, was, I was just bowled over by him. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was just pinching myself, first of all, because I couldn't believe this was happening. And second of all, I, was, I just was really marveling at how, how smooth he was and how good he could appear to be in terms of winning your confidence. But over a period, the period of time that I debriefed him, you know, you, as we got to know each other, you know, another side of him emerged, and that was a very dark side. That was a, he was very arrogant and very nasty, and very condescending, and imperious, and also and vicious and kind of scary at times, especially when he lost his temper. He could be really kind of frightening, and uh, it was. Um, and the more you got to know him, the less you liked him. You said that uh, there were several topics that would make him lose his temper or that uh, he would get angry with. What are some of those topics? I mean, human rights abuses were one that it seemed like he just could not understand that. Yes, yes. His, his attitude about human rights abuse and, and the way he treated his people were, was one of, who are you to judge me? And how do you know anything? 
And how do you know that these people that who claim to be victims are really victims, or that they what their their claims are true? And and how do you how do you profess to know what it is I have to deal with in terms of ruling my country? And it was just a very a, sort of a visceral kind of reaction to our questions. Uh, anything that had to do with his own personal security, he would just clam up. He would just say, I'm not talking about this. Um, intelligence matters. Didn't want to talk about. Um, you know, he, but on other things, you know, particularly on topics that were of a historical nature, he, he would expand, you know, you, you couldn't get him to shut up. Um, you know, it's only as we got closer to sort of the here and now and the sensitive issues that, you know, he, he really, and, and we did pry information out of him. Um, I, but it, it was rough going and it really required a lot of sort of circuitous, uh, questioning. Let me ask you this, and and I, you know, we've heard so much over the years uh, since the United States invaded uh, invaded Iraq about uh, enhanced interrogation methods and what yes. a lot of people call torture. You make a point of saying that that was totally off the table, and even Washington agreed with that when it came to Saddam Hussein. Yes, yes. Why the. Um, well, the uh, the head of my team originally was intending to use them, and then Washington stepped in and said, "Absolutely not." He, you know, he's to be treated with sort of, I forget what the phrase was. I think it was Geneva Conventions plus, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, thank God is all I can say because um, uh, I I've never been involved in enhanced interrogation techniques in, employing them. And I never want to be. And uh, uh, it would have been completely inappropriate to do that because the information we were looking for from Saddam was not of an immediate threat nature. And that's that's the time when uh, those techniques are used when you, they when uh, the authorities feel that there is an imminent threat and you know they they ha- they have to extract this information because time is of the essence. And that was not the case here. And also, I mean, when Saddam was in his trial phase, uh, he claimed that we tortured him. But I can tell you that he was treated far better than uh, he was. He was not tortured, and he was treated far better than anyone uh, ever treated that in in one of his jails. Well, let's talk about that because you write that you think his idea of torture was that first of all he was being held in this cold prison cell, plywood walls, that kind of thing. But the other thing was, he described himself as a writer. In fact, this is one of the most, I don't know, fascinating, surprising parts of the book, is that he was very hands-off, you write, uh, when Iraq was being invaded because he was writing a novel. And yeah. that even as the invasion was occurring, you know, he was sending out copies of this novel to be read. And why he thought he was being tortured was that he was being denied a pen or pencil because the, the thought was that he could harm himself. I mean, that's incredible. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, it was just part of this whole nightmare uh, called the Iraq War. And, you know, we, at at the CIA, we used to believe, uh, we used to see Saddam as this sort of master manipulator who was always pulling the strings and always providing guidance to try to outmaneuver the United States and the international community when, in fact, 
that was not even that, that was the opposite was true um and certainly the bush administration saw him as this man who was just you know steps away from blowing up the world um again nothing could have been further from the truth uh the the, the Saddam had really disengaged from the day-to-day running of his government in the last few years of his of his reign and uh you know and that's really kind of the thing that kind of got him in trouble um because you know after 9/11 Saddam thought things were going to be fine between well Saddam thought that the United States would see that he had nothing to do with it and that he had uh you know um that he had the same enemies as the as the United States in terms of fighting Islamic extremism, and yet the United States took entirely the opposite tack and said, you know, this is Saddam's got to go. Yeah, he actually was surprised that the United States didn't look at him, didn't look at Iraq as an ally yes. after 9-11 because there weren't uh, religious extremists in Iraq, uh, that the hijackers came from surrounding countries. Right. I mean, was he that naive that uh, he thought that the United States would uh, would be an ally? Well, it, it just shows you kind of his lack of understanding of sort of international relations in the United States. And also it shows you his his sort of, I think this is when the, the disengagement from the day-to-day um, you know, sort of, kind of created a vacuum of power at the top because, uh, you know, uh, on certain topics, they, they, the the people who were running the government on day to day always had to defer to Saddam for the really big, high ticket items in terms of governing. Um, and there were some, there were one or two things where Saddam really did kind of maintain an interest, and in, one of which was regime security, and and that meant monitoring threats to his regime and part of one of those threats came from the Shia community and to a lesser extent the Kurdish community but also from within his own Sunni base and uh, he had to be very very he monitored that very carefully I think Um, but you know it's sort of um, it's kind of this surreal quality this is one of the surreal elements of of this story, which is that you know the the master manipulator turns out to be a, a, a wannabe writer, and and is whiling away his hours working on on a novel. And uh, um, you know it, it was just something. Is one of these moments where I just you know I, I remember thinking, my God, what is going on here? Um, and uh, you know, uh, to this day, I mean, he he wrote four novels. And uh, and they're all really terrible. You know, he was not a he was not a gifted storyteller, and um, uh, you know it. It's something that I remember reading about, seeing little hints here and there prior to the war on Iraq, in which I remember reading reports that were saying that he was disengaged, and that you know at headquarters. We would talk about this, and it would be kind of dismissed as being, well, we don't think that's necessarily true, or, you know, that you know, the, he's he's really, you know, he, he's really in charge, and he's going to be, he's running things, and it wasn't the case. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Our guest today is John Nixon. He is author of the new book, Debriefing the President, the Interrogation of Saddam Hussein, just published last week. Mr. Nixon interrogated uh, Saddam Hussein, was the first one to do it at length from the, the CIA. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can go on WITF's Facebook page or Twitter at Smart Talk WITF to leave questions or comments as well. All right, so let's get into, before we take some phone calls, I want to get into a little bit more of uh, your discussions with uh, Saddam Hussein. You said that you had to win his trust to have these, these discussions. Uh, once you did that, you were getting a lot of pressure, not just from uh, Washington, from the White House, um, you know, at the time, you know, they were looking to desperately justify the reason for the invasion, the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but also there was a time element to it that the FBI was going to be coming in and interrogating him as well. So you only had a certain amount of time. So talk about that pressure. What did he have to say about weapons of mass destruction? Well, that was one of the, of course, that was one of the chief questions <clears throat> that Washington, in fact, the, the paramount question that Washington wanted answered, and it wanted answered in the form of get him to tell you where they are, not does he have them or not. And, uh, you know, we got into it, and we, we spent several sessions talking about this, and, you know, his answer was, what makes you think I, I have these? You know, I don't have them. And what's more, I, I don't have any plans to acquire them. And the, the problem here is that Saddam was one of the most secretive and suspicious men I've ever met in my life. Every time you asked him a question, he'd ask you a question back. And he just conducted himself in such a way that even when he was telling the truth, you kind of suspected that he was holding out on you, that somehow there's something lurking there that he doesn't want you to know. And, uh, and it created a suspicion uh, in, in, uh, in yourself as well. And, and it's kind of the, like the way he ran the, uh, the inspection process. You know, these guys would never find anything, but yet they always had this feeling that, you know, that somehow they're missing something. Um, now, when, as I was debriefing him on this, I, I, I will say that I was a skeptic. I, I, I didn't believe him. And by the end of it, I was kind of starting to question my own judgment. And then, you know, we started going through some of the debriefings of other uh, high officials in the, who were involved in the weapons program prior to the war. And then, you know, in some of the, through some of the captured documentation, and uh, it, became, it became clear that he was telling the truth. You know, one of the questions that many people ask in the run-up to the war, uh, and even after it started, uh, if, you know, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi government knew that the United States was considering military action, and they knew that, uh, based on the possibility of uh, Iraq having weapons of mass destruction, why didn't they just come out and say, we don't, and allow those weapons inspectors into Iraq? I mean, it just seemed like it would be a simple thing to do. Well, I think from Saddam's standpoint, his, his response would have been and was, but I did. I did say that, and I did allow weapons inspectors in, and, and you know, it was never enough. And you, were, and you, you know, talking to Saddam sometimes was talking like talking to a... a um, uh, a 16-year-old, you know, he sort of had this attitude at times, like nothing I do, you're never going to believe anything I say, nothing I do is good enough, 
and, and therefore, you know, the the whole world's against me. Um, he he would have said that he had done this and that you know the weapons inspection system was infiltrated with intelligence services that were not only looking to uncover his weapons program supposed weapons program but also were looking to looking for regime vulnerabilities so that they could report back to their government so that they could then make plans to overthrow Saddam as you um, go ahead we're going to say no and 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 in that regard he he was not he was not too far off base. You said that uh, when he would clam up or get most angry uh, is when you talked about human rights abuses, and you brought up uh, the the uh, uh, use of chemical weapons against uh, Kurds. And you know, he kind of he didn't deny it, but exactly he didn't take responsibility for it either. Mm. Yes, you're right. Um, and uh, you know, it was one of these. Again, it was one of these times when I asked him about his use of gas, uh, poison gas, in the attack on Halabja uh, against the Kurds in 1988. And uh, he got very upset, and um, he really, that was probably the angriest I saw him during my time with him. And he got upset and then basically said, you know, I didn't give the order, and and left it at that. Um and again, subsequently, again, I didn't, and I didn't believe him. I, I thought he was lying. I thought he was just being evasive. And I went back to some of the, again, some of the debriefings of other regime officials, and they corroborated this. And, and then there was documentation that corroborated it as well. And he, what happened was that he did not give the order um, that this was a battlefield decision. Um, and that it was a general on the ground who actually gave the order to use poison gas, and uh, um, I'm sorry, um, use, use chemical weapons, and uh, you know that's. And actually, Saddam was very upset about this because this occurred in the um, uh, sort of the Iranian uh, portion of Kurdistan. Well, the it was in PUK territory, Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, who was allied with Iran. And so he was afraid that the international media would condemn Iraq because Iran would make make sure that the media had access to the area, which they did. And but the thing is, um, you know, it's one of these it's one of these gray areas where yes, you know, he, he did create the conditions for which the general could use these weapons. He did give them the the, the leeway to do that, but yet he also didn't actually give that order himself. One of the uh, reoccurring themes in your conversations with Saddam uh, was that uh, how much of an impact the war between Iraq and Iran had on him and subsequently what happened happened afterwards. I know it's hard to put into words in just a few sentences, but that is a reoccurring theme that uh, he talked about that often. He hated the Iranians. He absolutely and, and saw himself as the great bulwark against Iranian influence in the region. And, in fact, he fought that war. And one of the reasons why he invaded Kuwait was because he fought that war and, uh, and he bled uh, profusely because of it and borrowed a lot of money from the Gulf Arabs. And then when he went back to them and said, you know, why don't you just 
you know, forgive my loans and not I don't have to pay them, and they wouldn't. And he, he got very upset with that. But yeah, no, the Iran war is a very big thing, and he, he just he felt this visceral dislike and hatred for Iran. And uh, to be honest with you, um, one of the things about removing Saddam from power, Iraq had always been a natural balance with Iran. And one of the things about removing Saddam from power is we lost that balance. And, you know, he, he sort of stood there athwart Iran's ambitions in the region. And now taking him out, Iran has been able to spread its influence. He actually was somewhat surprised by the American reaction in 1991 to the invasion in Iraq, or Kuwait, correct? Yes, yes. Um, you know, Saddam, we gave very ambiguous um, uh, words to, uh, to Saddam about what we would do. If we had been much clearer, if we had told Saddam in 1990, when April Glaspie went to see him, uh, if we had said to him, listen, you know, if you do it, if you using your army to invade Kuwait, and to settle this by force of arms, we are going to put 500,000 soldiers uh, on the ground in Kuwait and force your ar army out, and we're going to create a coalition of over 20 nations, including Arab, your, some of your Arab neighbors, and we're going to have battle carrier groups in the, in the Persian Gulf, and we're going to, you know, for, you know basically, you're going to lose control of almost all of your country. There is no doubt in my mind he would have said, "Okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go in, go in there." But instead, we said we went to him with a very ambiguous answer of, "Well, you know, this is an Arab problem, and we expect the Arabs to uh, to uh, solve it among themselves, and we hope that there isn't any violence or any force used," and and left it at that. And that's he learned, he listened to what he wanted to listen to, and he ignored the other part. Mm. Let's take a phone call from Jim and Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi. I wanted to make a couple comments uh, and have the uh, hear the response from uh, your uh, guest. Uh, I heard your comment that there are some people in the CIA who uh, seem to value their careers more than getting the truth up to uh, those in power. And I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, it's true of a lot of large organizations. I think it's equally true that a, a huge reason why we miscalculated Saddam and what he had and what he'd done was because of the pressure down from people like Vice President Dick Cheney, where, where he was making it uh, uh, very clear that uh, uh, he would not brook any dissent or any contrary points of view in terms of, of what the CIA had found. And uh, uh, this, this, frankly, is, is what concerns me most about the new uh, president, the president-elect, because he doesn't seem to be a disciplined thinker in, in the sense that uh, he won't suspend judgment until he hears all the facts. He seems to reach conclusions and then try to find facts to justify them. And I'd, I'd appreciate your comments on both of those uh, points. All right. Thank, thank you. you very much for your call, Jim. And, you know, and, and Mr. Nixon, I do want to get into, you know, his question, have you eventually asked that. But let me also interject here beforehand that you met with uh, President Bush and Vice President Cheney afterwards. What were those before we get to Jim's question, what were those conversations like? Um, they were very interesting conversations, uh, and uh, they had their surreal qualities as well. Um, you know, I went to brief them uh, on a number of topics, and uh, a couple of times we got into my debriefing. And this is this happened five years. Like, I briefed both 
President Bush and Vice President Cheney. And this is five years after I finished debriefing Saddam. Um, and they just seemed to be, uh, at the time, they just seemed to be looking for justice, still looking for justifications and asking questions about, you know, wep- weapons of mass destruction, ties to terrorism, human rights abuse. Um, and uh, what really was disturbing for me was that I, I, on some of these sessions, I came to talk about Muqtada al-Sadr, who was, who had really, by 2008, had sort of replaced Saddam as public enemy number one in the Bush administration's eyes concerning Iraq. And, uh, you know, I, I gave them, a, I gave them, you know, my, my take on it, and they, they wouldn't believe me. And they, they kind of start, immediately started sort of denigrating my analysis and trying to poke holes in what I said. And they wouldn't accept, instead of provoking questions, really was provoking sort of condemnation and efforts to sort of um, uh, disprove my, what I was saying. And it, it was almost as though we hadn't learned any, you know, these people hadn't learned anything from this, this fiasco of getting rid of Saddam. Now, what form did that take when you say uh, that they didn't believe you, they denigrated what you had to say? I mean, w- coming from the president and the vice president of the United States, what form did that take? Well, it was a meeting in the Oval Office, and it wasn't just those two. It was also the Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen, uh, National Security Advisor, Stephen Hadley, uh, Chief of Staff, Josh, Josh Bolton, was there. I, I mean, it was the, as, my, as I told my, one of my friends, it was the entire evil empire. And, uh, you know, they, they all just sat around them, and the president, you know, indicated his disapproval, and then they sort of circled the wagons and then started kind of throw, lobbing questions at me. And it was and it was one of the most uncomfortable half hours of my life, <laughs> if you can imagine, being just quest grilled on, on, on why you think something is a certain way and being and facing these very, very powerful figures and then just having them disbelieve everything and disc- trying to discredit everything you're saying. You know, your, your book is uh, especially timely right now because President-elect Donald Trump has uh, offered the, you know, that the, the same kind of point of view toward the intelligence community that doesn't believe what he has to say, uh, what they have to say when it comes to the election, uh, the, uh, you know, relationship with uh, Russia and uh, what kind of influence Russia had on the U.S. election, or at least trying to do it. And just today, there are going to be hearings about, uh, you know, the Russian Russians tr- trying to uh, influence the election. Now, this gets back to Jim, our caller's question. Uh, are there parallels between what you see with Donald Trump and what you experienced with the, the, the Bush administration and Saddam Hussein? You know, that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, if what I'm reading in the media is true, I would say, yes, there are parallels. I, I, I hope this is not going to be the case. You know, it's so this whole thing about Russia and the hacking thing, this, you know, once this is an important issue, um, but it should have been looked at behind closed doors and, and given to the president. And then president should have made this should have just sort of put this out should have declassified it and put it out for the American people to know. But instead, it gets leaked to the press, and then it becomes now a political football in which everybody digs their heels in, and really you're never going to get an answer now. Um, I would hope that President Trump, once he becomes president, will take his intelligence briefings and, and will you know, realize that there are things that he can learn from the intelligence community and that things that they can help him 
because there still are some very good people there, and uh, you know, and I would think that the intelligence community would faithfully serve their president by telling him not the things they want him to hear, but the things they feel he needs to know. And there's a big distinction in that. You know, it's, there's there's some irony in what you're saying, though, because earlier in our conversation, you were talking about uh, people doing exactly what you just said of, in the intelligence community, telling the president, telling the administration just what he wanted to hear. Um, and people who were thinking more of their careers than uh, the, the security of, of, of the country. And, you know, we made so many intelligence mistakes going into Iraq. Do you have confidence that it's changed enough that that the president can have confidence in the intelligence he's getting? That's, a, that's an excellent question, and, and I'm aware of the irony. And I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but you know something? Um, there are, like I said, there are some, some really good and, and smart people. And, you know, I, th- I still think the intelligence community... E- needs to be given a chance to prove themselves. You know, intelligence, one of the things that we have to get right about the intelligence community is that it really, and this is something that a lot of presidents get wrong about it, is that intelligence is not a crystal ball. You know, it's not always going to give you complete 100% truth and, and be able to predict the future, because you know something nothing can. Um, but you have to understand what its strengths are and what its limitations are. And the last president who really did that well was George H.W. Bush. I would give um, his successors, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, very, very low marks in this regard. Um, And as far as President-elect Trump goes, um, some of the things that I've been hearing have been very disturbing. The fact that he wants to have his own people provide him with intelligence, that he wants to sort of, uh, that, you know, he, he takes the side of someone like Julian Assange, Versus in his intelligence community, that is, I, I, I really, that gives me pause <laughs> in a great way, um, and uh, I, I hope that these things are not tr- true. But if they are, I think President Trump is going to find in a very short time that he's going to have to, he's going to have to change, because this, y- y- you cannot have a wall of mistrust between yourself as president and the intelligence community, because that is, uh, that is a fissure that our enemies will exploit to great advantage. We only have about 30 seconds left. I want to thank you very much. There's so much we didn't get to. But, uh, you know, just having an opportunity, all of the great dictators of the 20th century, you know, there were not people who had the opportunity to sit down and talk to them. You got an opportunity to talk to Saddam Hussein. About 30 seconds, what was that like? I think that one of the great things about it was that I learned so much about him and so much about his country. And that's what I told him when I left him. I said, thank you for this time because I've learned so much about you and your country. And you know something? As a country, we, this is what we should be doing. We should be talking to people. We shouldn't be reaching for our rifle and going to war based on the fact that this is our we want our, the military to be our first option the book is debriefing the president the interrogation of saddam hussein by john nixon mr nixon thank you very much for being with us today uh, well thank you for having me coming up tomorrow storytelling and also gettysburg